Our great God and Father, often overcomers is a terrific description of what we don't feel like. Yet we see that Scripture assures us that believers in Jesus overcome the world. Help every believer here to see more truly what this means and how to grow from where we are to where Scripture calls us to be. And grant that every unbeliever hear how to escape enslavement enslavement to the world's lies and to its doom. That one path escape, which is not a path but a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray for the power of your Spirit helping me, opening my mouth, and the giving of the words of God faithfully to your pleasing, to the good of your people, to the conversion of the lost. In Jesus' name, amen. Well now, I'm going to ask for a show of hands. Two weeks ago, I preached a sermon on overcoming the world and then decided to follow up with a sermon on what it means to, how to do the overcoming of the world. And I told you it was a three-point sermon, but it was so full I decided to preach one point last week and two points this week. Now, show of hands, how many hearing that said to yourself, it's going to be two sermons? (laughs) All right, you know me pretty well. Well done. Indeed, it is going to be two sermons. I'll preach the second today, and Lord willing, the third, and my plan is last in the series next Sunday. Decades ago, when I was in a time of depression as a, as a younger man, uh, somebody thought I might be helped by a series from a, a well-known and good preacher about overcoming the world from First John 5. And uh, this good man listed out from the Bible, I think it was five reasons why the Christian is an overcomer. Bam, 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 bam. Five verses that just announced we're an overcomer. And after listening to that series, I was more depressed than I was at the beginning. Because it seemed to me that he was preaching, this is what the Bible says, this is what the Bible says, this is what the Bible says, which is fine and good and is indeed what we're called to do. But he didn't help me see how to get from where I was to where the Bible is, to where that truth is. And I just felt all the more left behind. And so my hope, my prayer, my intention is that nobody feel that or have reason to feel that uh, through this sermon. I, I mean to show you not just that the Bible says we're overcomers, but what is involved in being and living as an overcomer and how to get there from wherever it is that we find ourselves today. So in the first sermon, we defined what the world is, that that is... That is the attempt to create a a safe zone from God, Uh, a safe spot where we can indulge ourselves and follow our own will in rebellion against the person and the will of God. That's the idea of the world. We were plunged into that by the sin of our first parents. But Jesus came and he overcame the world. He was like the anti-Adam. He committed himself and submitted himself fully to the will of God and gave himself on the cross as the atonement for his people, for the elect's sins, for every last sin of his people. Made full atonement for them, purchased their conversion, their salvation, their sanctification, their glorification by his work on the cross, and rose from the dead and rose to the right hand of the Father and leads us in his victory. And we overcome the world not from anything that we do, but from who he is and what he's done. And so as Paul says, God forbid that I would glory except in the cross of Jesus Christ, by which I am crucified to the world and the world to me. 
So that's where we stand. Now in the, in the second sermon on the series, we began looking at how it is that we overcome the world, specifically the overcomer's stance. And the first thing we saw last week, this is a little test, was what ing word? What is the overcomer always doing? The whole sermon was about, starts with an S, then it has two E's, only one letter left. <laughs> seeking, that's right, seeking. That we are seeking. The Christian is a, life, is a person who gives his life to seeking. Seeking with a focused mind. The things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, Colossians 3. Seeking with forward motion, as John 8 says, continuing in the word of Christ, pushing ahead and growing and overcoming obstacles as the word of Christ leads us on. And seeking third with a fervent motivation, as we're called to uh, serve the Lord with a fervent spirit, a, a burning, on-fire attitude towards the Lord. That's seeking. So today we're going to look at the stance of standing, Roman numeral 2. Ephesians 6 is much taken up with that, though we'll be in a number of different scriptures, but Ephesians 6 will be our um, resting grounds. You might as well turn there. That's where much of this teaching is going to come from, and it's going to be based on Ephesians chapter 6. So you might be thinking when I announced standing, did that, does that sound anticlimactic to you? Do, you? do you think, well, standing, that's not much of an accomplishment. <laughs> There's not much to stand, and we've done it a few times. We'll probably do it at least one more time today, most of us. It doesn't take a lot to stand. Well, in itself, standing, I'll, I'll grant you, standing doesn't take a lot. But what about standing when the very ground beneath you is shifting? As a Californian, I can speak with some familiarity on that subject. Wow, it is a sleepy day, isn't it? Y'all are with me, right? Let's all say a hearty amen. Amen. All right then. It's difficult to stand when the very ground beneath you is shifting. What about standing when everything around you is constantly shifting and you can't get your own perspective as if you were in a nightmare? What about standing when forces both visible and invisible are constantly plucking at you and pushing at you to get you off your balance and, and off your game and off your feet? Uh, what about standing when even something inside of you tempts you to stray and to lose your balance and to get off your base and off the path? Wobble, weave, give away. Well then, in that case, standing is a bit of an accomplishment, isn't it? And that's where we find ourselves. That's what standing is for the Christian in this world, and we are in this world. We are not yet in the kingdom of God. So first then, let's look at the battle, Roman numeral, uh, capital letter A. We need to understand the battle in which we are called to stand, and we are called to stand in this battle. And to understand what that means, we need to understand our position. Letter A, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, number one, where we are. We need to understand where we are where we find ourselves, where every, every person, every child of God finds himself right now. And that is found in our position, letter A, verse 12. Paul says that we are in a war. Ephesians 6, 12, he says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So we find ourselves in an incessant 24-7, 365 high-stakes 
battle. That's where we are. There are no exceptions in this world. This battle has been raging since our first father was young. That's when it began, as a matter of fact. If, if Acts 2 is, the, is the, the Pentecost of the church, the, the birth of the church, Genesis 3 is the Pentecost of the world. It's where the world was born with Adam's sin. And so this battle has been raging in our race, in our world, since that time. And note what Paul says. What does he call it? Whose struggle? Our struggle. Our struggle. It is a a battle in which every one of us is a combatant. And there are only two sides to this battle. And we are either on one side of this battle or we're on the other side. There are no non-combatants. Non-combatants are on the other side. People who are not fighting this war for the glory of God are fighting in one way or another for the other side. Uh, We are unconsciously serving the other side if we are not consciously serving God's side. Our struggle. And we're not... uh, If we're not struggling, we're losing ground. This is a battle in which we are either pressing forward or losing ground. There is no stationary good spot. Uh, And notice, too, that Paul says against. How many times? One, two, three, four, five times he says against. You know, in Greek, he could perfectly well have just said it once. That it is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the world forces of this darkness, and so forth. But he repeats against. Why is that? It's a Greek preposition that stresses the idea of being face-to-face, of an up-close-and-personal encounter. And, and the word for struggle, in fact, pale, is a word used for grappling. When we were in Ephesians 6, I translated it, grappling. Uh, it's hand-to-hand combat. It's, it's not something that can be observed from a distance. Well, it can also be observed from a distance, but that's while we're grappling. <laughs> hand-to-hand. It's very personal. And Paul emphasizes that by five times saying that it is a face-to-face confrontation. So we see our position. Now let's look at the opposition, letter B. What about the opposition? Who are we up against? Again, verse 12 says it. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Well, that's kind of unsettling, isn't it? I mean, we're in Texas. We're great believers in self-defense here. And we, uh, ma- many of us, if not most of us, arm ourselves in case somebody busts into our house. We know how to repel home invaders. Bullets will do the job. Knife, sword, clubs, all sorts of things will do that job. How do you defend yourself against something that's spiritual? What do you shoot a spirit with? What do you club a spirit with? What, what, what possible weapons can we have against the... Well, it needs to be a different kind of weapon because it's a different kind of opponent, isn't it? But you've got to know what it is you're facing. I mean, if you're going to... I, I, I want to go fishing. I can't take my little tiny trout flies out to the ocean and try to catch a marlin with one of them. It wouldn't even be seen. You've got to know what you're up against. And you don't bring a, a, a knife to a gunfight and you don't bring carnal weapons to a spiritual fight. And that's exactly exactly why Paul is identifying uh, our opponents for us. Uh, he tells us even more in Ephesians chapter 2. You can just page back if you've got your Bible open, as I hope you do, as I've asked you to. Ephesians 2, and look at verses 2 and 3. You might immediately think that this uh, in the first doesn't apply, but I'll show you how it does. 
We were dead in our transgressions, he says, verse 2, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all formerly conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Well, before we comment on the larger picture, just what specific forces are, are named here? You formerly walked according to the course of the world. Well, that's the world, although the Greek word is ion, age. But um, world is where God is fought, and ion is the time in which he's fought. It's, they're synonyms, more or less, for each other. So there's the world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Well, who's that? That's the devil. So the world, the devil, and what's next? Among whom we also all formerly conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. Well, what's that? That's the flesh. So we've got the world, the devil, and the flesh. See, that trio is not just traditional. It is biblical. And here they all are. And that is where we were. Now, somebody might perfectly rightly say, well, but Paul is just saying that to say that we were regenerated. That's where we were. But we're still in that world, that society. When God saved us, he did not airlift us to heaven. Jesus makes a great point of that. You chose them out of the world, but you didn't take them out of the world. So they need to be in the world, Jesus prays, but not of it. Well, we're still in the world, and that's what the world is, and that is what surrounds us. We're still surrounded. We are in an age in which people are following the prince of the power of the air, an age in which people are indulging every whim of their flesh, an age in which the world is still not the kingdom of God, but it's opposed to God. That's where we are. And what was the one word there that's a real problem for us? Well, we're in the world, we're opposed by the devil, but we still have the flesh, don't we? We still have the flesh. That's like the world's walkie-talkie in our head. You know, that's, still, that's where we still get those messages and they still tug at our coat sleeves and they still flash before our eyes and they still shove us and push us. But from inside, you think I'm exaggerating, read Romans seven fourteen through 25. What is the apostle? The apostle, what does the apostle say there? The good I would do, I do not. The evil that I would not do, this I do. When I have the good to do, I find the evil is right there by me. Where is it? In his flesh, he says. I know that it, in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. And then he says at the end, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Thank you. Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. That deliverance is coming, but we're not there yet. Now we are in the flesh, and the flesh desires against the Spirit, Paul tells us in Galatians 5. So through the flesh, the world and the devil still get at us. That's still where we are, and that's why we're warned of this battle. That's our position. That's our opposition. <clears throat> so let's look next at what we need to overcome in this battle, given such formidable foes on the outside and even one still on the inside left over. What we need. Three particulars Paul lists, lists out. Uh, first of all, we need, letter A, every bit of the very strength of God himself. Verse 10. 
Now notice what he says opening this in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the might of his strength. Now do you notice there three synonyms for the same thing? For what? For power. Be strong in the Lord and in the might of his strength. One little verse, but three times he stresses the idea of power. Now there's a real lesson to this. What kind of power is that, friend? Is it willpower? Is it the power of your sunny disposition? Is it the power of the little memes and sayings that we get off the internet? Is that the power? What does he say? Be strong in the Lord. Now let me stress that that is a passive verb. Be made inwardly strong in the Lord. It's a strength I receive. And the two attached prepositional phrases stress that. Let me back up. What this all says is that the power with which we must be strong for this battle, if we're to be overcomers, cannot be our power. We will look inside for that power in vain. It is not in us. But what does he say again? He says, be strong in the Lord, or a bit more literally, be made continually strong in the Lord. So if I'm to be made strong in the Lord, it's not my power. It's a received power from outside of me given to me in my union with Christ. Not native, not inborn, not worked up from within myself, but given me in my relationship with the Lord. And secondly, as if saying it once is not enough, obviously he sees this as needing emphasis because he says, and in the might of his strength. So the might of the strength that he gives me. So what I bring to this battle is insufficient. I don't have what it takes to fight this fight, but I can be given. I will be given as I look to the Lord what I need for this fight. Paul stresses this is over our heads, but don't despair. Look to the Lord. That's where we get the strength that we need. We need the strength of God. Secondly, we need every bit of the very armor of God himself. Verses 13 through 17. Now, this is uh, part of being strong in the Lord. Uh, with Continuing with that idea, notice how verse 11 says, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able, or a bit more literally, you will have the power to stand for, firm against the schemes of the devil. Now, just a bit of interpretation if you didn't go through the Ephesians series with us. This is something I spent a good deal of time on. You read some perfectly good preachers and commentators who expound this armor of God as if these are Christian character strengths that we are to work on developing within ourselves. And they're all good graces we should be growing on. We should be growing in leading a righteous life and, and having faith and um, knowing the Word of God and all of these things but that kind of overlooks the opening words. What are the opening words? He says it's the full armor. What's the next two words? Well, of God. He makes it, and He gives it to me. I don't make it. I tell you what, if, if I make the armor and go out to this fight, it's, it's like somebody cutting up cardboard boxes and duct-taping them, taping them on himself and saying he's ready for war now. Think of that picture. How long would that work? But this is not that. This is the full armor of God. These are things that God gives me, that, that it's crafted by God, and I receive it. Because 
The battle is a spiritual battle. So I can't fight spiritual foes by things I do from within myself. That's kind of going back to the way of the world in which that I get from within myself what I need. But instead, for this battle, I'm not fighting the way the world fights. I'm fighting with weapons that God gives me. So when he speaks of the breastplate of righteousness, it's not my righteousness. That's like Swiss cheese. What kind of a breastplate would that be? It's the breastplate of Christ's righteousness, His righteousness imputed to me. And so it is with all of, with, with all of these, this weaponry. It's something God has made, something God gives. It tells us all the places in which we'll be attacked and what God has given us to proof ourselves, if you will, against this attack. Uh, he says in verse 11, we're to put it on. He says in verses 13 and 16, we're to take it up. And what verb does he use in verse 17? The helmet of salvation, what do we do with that? We receive it. So these are gifts of God, but we look to God to receive these gifts. And how do I put it on? It's, again, not by personal self-effort and improvement. It's by looking to God and appropriating these things in faith. What, pardon me, what does faith do? Hebrews 11.1, well, it's the substance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. I lay hold of these things by looking to God by His Word in faith and thanking Him and praising Him that Christ's righteousness is mine. It's not my own. That the shield (coughs) is the shield of the faith He's revealed. That the truth that I apply about my waist is the truth of His Word. <clears throat> and the sword of the Spirit is, is not the word of me. It's not the word of my denomination. It's the word of God. We don't have a denomination, but you understand the principle. It's the word of God. And so all of this is given by God for us to take up. We don't make it. We don't achieve it. We don't produce it. Uh, we look to God for it, thank God for it, and step out in it. So, We need every bit of the strength of God. We need every bit of the armor of God. When Satan attacks us, it is not our righteousness that will deflect him. It's not our feeling of confidence that will deflect him. It is the righteousness of Christ. It is his his arrows of doubt and and, uh, accusation and of distraction will not be put out by our clever arguments or our clever reasoning. They can only be quenched by the shield of faith, the faith once for all given to the saints, the, what we're called to believe in by the Word of God. Only that is sufficient to extinguish all, Paul says, the flaming arrows of the evil one and our one offensive bit of armor, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We must learn it, we must know it, we must continue in it. We don't make it up. We do not make it up. So we need every bit of the very strength of God Himself, and He does give that to us as we look to Him. We need every bit of the very armor of God Himself, and He has given that to us in Christ and does give it to us as we look to Him. And thirdly, we need constant prayers to God for ourselves and all saints, verse 18. Now, this is not a bit of the armor of God. It's an error to say that it is. It's not likened to any bit of weaponry, but it is something Paul says at the conclusion of this. And so we should uh, consider this something that applies to the battle we're in. Praying at all times. So, So put on the full armor of God, all these pieces, and as the hymn says, each piece put on with prayer. 
praying through the whole process and after the process. He says, praying at all times with all prayer and petition in the Spirit, and to this end, being on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Now, I could, I could picture somebody saying, well, yeah, duh, we're supposed to pray. I hear that all the time. We're supposed to pray. Spurgeon was huge on that. I, I see it in any Christian thing I see. It's very important to pray. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what is prayer at its heart? Think hard with me here. What is the very essence of prayer at its heart? Now, I hope that many of you would say, well, prayer is talking to God. Because that's exactly right. Prayer is talking to God. I've taught you that many times. It's not a conversation. God doesn't speak back in our heads. God speaks back only through Scripture. Prayer is me talking to God. But, but what is the idea of prayer? What is the essence or the heart of prayer? Well, prayer is an expression of dependence, isn't it? When I look to God in prayer, I'm expressing my dependence on God. I'm saying I'm not sufficient. And I'm afraid that the person who prays the least is the person who trusts God the least and depends on God the least and has the, the most imagination. And I do say it's imagination because it's, it's false, that he's got everything he needs inside of himself so he doesn't really need to pray. And when we do pray, we are saying... I don't have everything that I need, but you have everything I need. I need to look to you for my very life, for my, 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 my choices. I need to look to you for my spiritual life, for your kindness. I need to look to you in thanksgiving, in confession, in, in adoration, in worship. And if I don't pray much, then it, it says that I don't think about God very much. I don't, certainly don't think much of my dependence of God on God. I don't need, think much of my need of God. Now, again, I can picture a, a person saying very easily, listening to this, yeah, but you know, I mean, really, yeah, 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 all that about prayer, sure. But prayer doesn't really change anything. You're saying, pray, 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 sure. But prayer doesn't really change anything. Well, and maybe you think, especially if you don't know me, that I'm just going to say, oh, but it does, and then rush on. No, I'm not going to say that, actually. <laughs> I'm going to stop and think about that with you. I want to hold that up to the light of Scripture. Suppose that's our thought. It's a really good thing if you know that's your thought. If that's the thought you have, and I just put my finger on it, well, this is a very important moment for you and me, because this is a very important lesson to learn. If my th primary thought about prayer is I don't think too much of it because it doesn't really do anything. What am I really saying? I'm saying I don't really get God to do what I want him to do by asking him to. Isn't that exactly what that means? What does it mean when I say pray doesn't change anything? It means I ask God to do things and he doesn't do them. And, and what is that saying? It doesn't get God to do my will. Isn't that right? If my thought about prayer is, is, well, it doesn't change anything, I'm saying, well, by that I mean, I tell God to do stuff and he doesn't do it, so why should I do that? Now, what kind of thinking is that? Do you see now that that is exactly worldly thinking? That is Genesis 3 right there. That is Genesis 3 right in our hearts, on our lips when we say that. Because Genesis 3, it was all about, well, I don't want to do what God says, I'm going to do what I want to do. And if God's going to have a role in my world, my kingdom, it's got to be the role of doing what I want him to do. And, you know, you say, oh, that's so discouraging. I'm supposed to be a Christian. Oh, no, that's the flesh. We've all got things to unlearn, and I do mean all of us. 
and we're constantly doing it unless we're not growing at all. But if we're growing, we're learning all sorts of things we need to unlearn, and this would be one of those things because prayer is not how I get God to do what I want Him to do. Prayer is not how I get God to be my servant, though praise to His name, He constantly does do things I ask. Protect my family when I go to work, watch over my family. Innumerable prayers granted, but of course our minds stick on the five or ten or fifteen ones that we've asked that he hasn't done yet, what we've asked him to do, and that bothers us. But you know, prayer, godly prayer, God-honoring prayer, is an expression of dependence and submission and adoration, not manipulation. And so Paul says, praying at all times. Yes, because I am standing in opposition against a world whose whole theme song is I did it my way. And I'm not going to oppose that by saying, I'm getting God to do it my way. <laughs> no, that's not opposition. I'm with them. You see? The only way to oppose them is with a mindset of not my will, but yours be done. Where do I get that idea? The Bible and the Son of God, who is the real Adam, who is the final, ultimate Adam, the the last Adam, who did what Adam should have done. So, yes, always praying with all prayer. We need every bit of God's power. We need every bit of God's armor. We need every bit of prayer because the enemy is beyond us. I've told you this story. I'll just tell you really briefly. There was an actor I saw years ago and you know, if you're an actor, <laughs> you take every part that you can. It's, it's not like, um, well, it's not like being an air conditioner uh, repairman in Houston where you've always got work uh, or a plumber <laughs> these days. Uh, if you get a job, you want to take it. But he turned down at least one job where he was going to be in this production that was about uh, the devil tempting a man. And the end of the production was the man outsmarts the devil. He says, he's a Christian, and he says, I can't do that. We never outsmart the devil. That's right, we never outsmart him, out-talk him, out-tough him. Never, never, never. He's way above us, way smarter, way faster, way more clever. Our only hope is the power of God, the armor of God, and our dependence on God, which we express through prayer. Letter B, then, the goal. What is the goal of our place in this battle? Well, the goal is to stand firm. 6.13 to 14a. Therefore take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, dot, dot, dot. What is three times there? Well, one of them is not obvious in the English translation. What is three times there is the word stand. Because the first, uh, to resist... Um, etymologically you could see it, but um, the Greek word is antistenai, which simply means to stand against. That's the way I'd probably translate it. Um, to stand against. He says that you may be able to stand against or withstand in the evil day. And then the simple verb twice, uh, histamai, uh, that you may stand firm, verse 13, stenai, and stand firm, the imperative, verse 14, steta, three times. Stand against Stand firm, stand firm. What's the dominating idea here? A little seminary lesson here. What's the dominating idea? 
stand. <laughs> that's right. That's, that's what it's all about, listening to what the, the clues that the author gives you. Standing. This is about standing. So do you see now why standing is a, a, a big deal for overcomers? Do you see why it is a big thing to say stand firm to an overcomer and it's not a small thing to be taken for uh, granted? I mean, having looked at it a little more closely now, do you feel woefully uh, outmatched in this struggle? Good. That's appropriate. We are. We're woefully overmatched in this struggle. It's true. So given that, the wrong responses are on the one hand to say, well, then I give up because I'm so overmatched. I just give up. I just am going to be a non-combatant, which meaning you're going to serve the other side. Or to say, on the other hand, yes, you're right. I've really got a tough opposition. I am really going to have to man up. I'm really going to have to double my efforts, and I'm going to have to really be stronger and try harder. Well, that's also the wrong response. The right response is to confess my weakness and to look to God who is my strength. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Isaiah 41.10 says, I will help you. I will uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness. I confess my weakness. I look to God and I receive what He gives me to enable me to stand firm in this battle. And I hold fast to Jesus and I confess out loud that I'm looking to Him. That's what standing firm is. Now, I want to clarify something. Standing firm does not mean immobility in the sense of I'm not going anywhere. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, wonderful verse, great verse. If you haven't memorized it, I commend it. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. Literally, that is uh, become settled. The word means seated. Somebody who's just sitting and not moving. Become settled immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Well, does the second part clash with the first? The first says, become settled and immovable, and the second part says, working all the time. Well, it's, to, it's two different angles. Where's the Im immobility? I am to be immobile in terms of my confession of, my, of Christ, my grasp of Christ, my commitment to the Word of God. Nothing's supposed to move me away from that. But I'm not personally to be immobile. What did we see last week? I'm constantly be, to be moving forward. Hebrews 5, he sees them not growing and he's worried that they're not even saved because they're not growing. And that's what brings the warning in chapter 6. So, uh, John 8, continue in my words. So, I'm to stand firm in my faith, not straying, not defecting, but I am always abounding in the work of the Lord. I'm not, I'm not <clears throat> unmoving in the sense of <clears throat> not advancing, not growing, and not serving, and not changing, deepening, maturing. If those things aren't happening, that is a huge, huge alarm. That's a lump. So the goal is to stand firm, not in the sense of immobile, but in the sense of not being moved away from Christ and the Word of God my faith, my confession of him. That's the goal. Letter C, let's examine the dangers of not standing firm. So you say standing firm sounds kind of difficult. Well, what are the alternatives? The only alternative to standing firm is, well, I'm going to detail five of them. 
What are five things that can happen if we don't stand firm? The first is infantile, vulnerable, deluded chaos. Don't that sound like fun? Well, you say, I've seen that. Yeah, you have. Ephesians 4.14 says that if we grow in Christ, the result is we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. I mean, I'm just thinking if I could pick one sentence to describe the professing church scene today, that's the one. That's the one, right? What, isn't that not what we see? People tossed here and there, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by the craftiness and deceitful scheming. And what's that a result of? Read the first part of the chapter. Not being under pastors and teachers who teach us the word of God and not growing in that word as part of a local church. Read Ephesians 4. That's what it's all about. Growing in a local church, in the ministry and life of a local church, under the ministry of the Word. James describes this sort of person. James 1, verses 6 through 8. The one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. If I don't stand firm then where I will end up is infantile, vulnerable, deluded chaos. I'll be like a child who, this way, that way, all over the place. Uh, But uh, God calls me instead to stand firm. Secondly, sudden crash. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Well, what matters is that I stand and not that I think that I stand. (laughs) That I give a lot of effort and thought and prayer into standing firm and not say, oh, I'm good. Those are the famous last words before a crash. No, I got this. How many tombstones could that be on? I got this. Yeah, but the person who thinks he stands should should watch out because that, what does uh, Proverbs say in a couple of different ways? That pride goes before... A fall and a haughty spirit, haughty spirit before destruction. I think I got backwards saying it's pride before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. You all want to wait while I look that up? Let's just move on. We can look it up later. Is that okay? All right, good deal. Uh, so, but anyway, pride, that kind of pride precedes a fall. It guarantees a fall. It causes a fall. Uh, Paul warns against this also in 1 Timothy 1.19, where he talks about, uh, he says, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected, suffered shipwreck with regard to their faith. Big fall, big crash. That's the second alternative to standing firm. The third alternative or consequence of not standing firm is spiritual corruption. Now, this is a harrowing warning here. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 3 and 4. But I fear that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds, he writes, a professing Christian church that's had an apostle minister to it. Your minds will be corrupted from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and and preaches another Jesus whom we did not preach, or you receive a different spirit which you did not receive, or a different gospel which you did not accept, you bear this beautifully. People who say sarcasm is not godly, I don't think have read the Bible very carefully. That is very sarcastic. That's very, you, you are just chef's kiss for receiving people who are preaching different Jesuses and different Gospels, he says. That is not a compliment. 
That's a warning because that's just what Satan does. Remember how many times have we seen it? He doesn't come up to Eve and say, hey, I got an idea that's going to ruin you and all your children and send you to hell under the wrath of God forever. Like to hear more? This is not what he does. He poses as your best friend, and that's what false teachers do. I'm only here to help you. And so Paul says, I, I fear that this will work. And what, what, what will happen is that you will be corrupted. Your minds will be corrupted from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. The idea there is a single-minded, firm, committed devotion to Christ. And somebody comes along with a shiny object, and off we go. And that's what Paul is warning us against. Also, number four, satanic consumption. What verse is that about satanic consumption? 1 Peter 5, 8. Be of sober spirit, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. That's very good. Someone, anyone, doesn't matter who, he'll take it. Now, this is an interesting verse, isn't it, in its depiction of Satan? It doesn't speak of him having times when he's feeling peckish, when he's feeling like he could use a little, little nosh, he could use a little bite. He's always looking around hungry, looking for someone to devour. Always. Why is that? Well, because he's always hungry. Now, that's not a small thing. Let's not rush past that. What's his pose? His pose is, I'm sufficient. I got it all together. I don't need God. I'll show you how to live that way. You don't need God either. Well, that sounds great. How's that working out for you? Well, he's hungry all the time. He's hungry. See, God is full and giving. Satan is empty and devouring. It's of Jesus we read, and of his fullness have we all received, and grace upon grace. That's Jesus. In him we are filled full. That's Jesus. What we read about Satan is he's always looking for someone to eat because he's never full. He's never satisfied. And so if we don't stand firm in God's strength with God's armor, he wants to eat us. His tastiest snack is to gobble up a Christian. To gobble up a Christian in doubt. To gobble up a Christian in fear. To gobble up a Christian in guilt. To gobble up a Christian in foolishness. A Christian who's heard the call of the Word of God again and again and known he should do something about it, but just won't. Or a Christian who knows he shouldn't do something and just can't seem to help himself and does And so we end up wrapped in guilt and fear and we don't dare try to do anything. What we need to do is repent, receive God's forgiveness and get back to the battle. Suit up, strap on the armor, pray and get back in the battle that Satan would devour if he could. And evidently it's a a risk. How do I know it's a risk? Because I I got seminary? No, because I read this verse where he says, be watchful. So if he's telling you and me to be watchful, thinking it's a risk. You say, oh, that's for unbelievers. Um, Go back to the first verse of the letter. He's writing believers, and he's telling us, you be on your guard for this lion. Finally, fifth, subversion. If we don't stand firm, subversion is a risk. Hebrews 12, 15, where the writer calls us to be seeing to it, that no one falls short of the grace of God so that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble 
and by it many be defiled. Now this is what a gobbled up Christian does. He defiles others. If Satan gets him swallowed up in bitterness and guilt and folly, then he looks for other people to make just as miserable as he is himself. And this is the greatest threat to a church. What, what, is, what is our and any church's greatest threat? Is our greatest threat that some atheist is going to stand outside and yell bad things at us, try to hurt our feelings? Is that our greatest threat? <clears throat> or is it that Satan gobbles up someone in our midst and that person goes around spreading? And I tell you what, you can put on a mask and it won't make any difference. <laughs> not for this, not for this spreading of defilement. It's a spiritual thing and it's a risk. So, so when somebody who should be battling for the kingdom of God is gobbled up and subverted to, to any degree, then he becomes a fifth columnist on the other side, trying to convert other people and get them out of the fight as well. And so often our greatest threat is not from loud, chest-beating, keyboard-pounding unbelievers. It's from professed believers who've discovered all these wonderful new things that they can't wait to share with everybody. And they're just straight from hell. So, hey, does that sound kind of grim? It does sound kind of grim. Well, my intent in part is just to remind us all we are in a battle. This is not a game. We're not playing for fun. We only get one chance in this world as Christians to score victories for our king on a battlefield. And as far as I read the Bible, for the rest of eternity, it's paradise. So the question, what did you do in the war? This is the time that answers that question. This is the war. What are we doing in the war? We need to stand firm. And God's given us what we need to stand firm. And yeah, it's nothing to take for granted. It is something that we need to be very serious about. But I do want to add one thing before we finish. It should be sobering and attention-grabbing. In fact, if it depended on us, it wouldn't be sobering and attention-grabbing. If it depended on us, it would be utterly crushing and depressing. Did we in our own strength confide? How's the next line go? Our striving would be, we're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Now, you know that, um, as a rule, I hate spoilers. I am very opposed to spoilers. I hate people who give spoilers for movies and books. But in this case, I think it's very important to look at the spoilers and see how this battle turns out and why we should battle with great hope confidence, optimism, and joy, and hope for the future, for a sure and certain future. And that's going, I'm going to look at last with you at the outcome. The outcome, letter D. And I'm going to say uh, four things about the outcome in closing. First of all, the outcome is settled by Jesus, in whom and through whom strength alone we overcome. We only overcome in and because of Jesus. It is settled by Jesus. John 12, 31. Jesus says on the eve of his uh, arrest and crucifixion, he says, now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Satan's defeat happens at the cross. That is the decisive victory. You think, oh no, that's Armageddon. No, Armageddon is, is going to be the, a mop-up operation. This is where Satan was defeated, at the cross of Christ by Christ. 
John, it should be 1611. It wrongly says 1331, but it's John 1611 is the next verse. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Satan was judged at the cross. Yes, he still roams around. No, he's not bound in a bottomless pit, but he will be, and he will end up in the lake of fire because of what Jesus did on the cross. And so Philippians 2, 9 and 10, we remember Philippians 2, that Jesus humbled himself to the point of death on the cross. And then Paul says, therefore, God also highly exalted him because of his obedience on the cross. His reward is that God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. That day is coming and it's settled. Why is it settled? What event decided this? The cross. Every knee will bow, not because Armageddon is going to be a whopping big battle. It kind of looks like an anticlimax, to be, to be perfectly honest, when you read Revelation. Not a very protracted struggle at all. Boom, they're defeated. Why? Because of this, because of the cross. That is why every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, including Satan's, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Not in conversion, but in accepting their judgment. It is settled. Secondly, it is assured to to overcomers. It's assured to us because of what God has promised. 2 Peter 3, 13 and 14. But according to his promise... We're looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you were looking for these things, be diligent to be found in him in peace, spotless and blameless. It's his promise that these will come, that that we are looking for new heavens and a new earth. Not this one, but a new heaven and a new earth in which he says righteousness dwells. Lovely Greek word, katoikeo, it means it settles down there. Now we see flashes of righteousness here and there. But in the new heavens and new earth, righteousness will be the norm. In fact, it will be the absolute norm, ultimately. And how do I know? What trends do I see in the newspaper and on the internet that tell me, tell me that's coming? Not a one. I'd never get that from what I see in, happening in the world. But I don't look to the world to find out what's going to happen, right? I look to Scripture. I look to God's promises. And that's a promise. It's assured because of what God has promised, and it is assured because of who Christ is. Revelation 17 talks about the beast, the normally called the Antichrist. I call him the beast. Well, John calls him the beast. That's why I do. And his seven kings is his uh, associates. And it says in Revelation 17, 14, that they will wage war against the Lamb. Who knows what's going to happen? We'll read the rest of the verse. And the Lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with him are the called and elect and faithful. Why will he overcome them? Because he's Jesus. That's why. Because he's King of kings and he's Lord of lords. And that's what he does. He overcomes anyone who rises against him. And this is so important. The victory, you might say, oh, but I look at the church and I just don't have... How can I have any hope? Well, if I were a post-millennialist and thought that the church was going to bring in the kingdom of God, I would be discouraged. But I don't. I believe what the Bible says, and I believe Jesus will bring in the kingdom of God himself. 
And we'll follow him saying, yep, 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 we're with him. And that's, that's how the kingdom of God will come, not because of what we've accomplished. Our victories will matter. We'll be rewarded. But it won't bring in the kingdom of God. Jesus brings in the kingdom of God. God may bless our efforts to bring people into the kingdom of God, but Jesus brings the kingdom of God. And that is settled, and that's assured. And thirdly, it's glorious. <clears throat> it's glorious for the world. Revelation eleven fifteen through 18 is the last round of judgments begins, the last bit of the tribulation period. The seventh angel sounded, and that's the seventh trumpet that issues in the seven bowls, which brings the return of Christ ultimately. So he says, the kingdom of the world has become, uh, voices in heaven say, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God the Almighty, who is and who was, because you've taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and your rage came, and the time came for the dead to be judged and to give reward to your slaves, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. There it is. It will be glorious for the world as the kingdom of God comes, the kingdom of our God and the kingdom of his Christ, and he will reign forever. Glorious for this tired, poor, beleaguered old world and glorious for us. <clears throat> First, in terms of Revelation 12, which we read at the beginning of the service, where salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. He accuses them before our God day and night and they overcame him. I'm interested in that. I've been talking about overcoming. What do I do to overcome him? Well, they overcame him by, because of the blood of the lamb. Because of the... I overcome him by my doing nothing except getting under the blood of the Lamb, looking to and trusting in the blood of the Lamb. That's what overcomes him. Christ's death on the cross. That's what overcomes him. And when I believe in Jesus, I become part of that victory, all of which is accomplished by Jesus. So I overcome him on Jesus' coattails. You understand? entirely in and because of Jesus, and you overcome him, and your only hope of overcoming him, but your assured and certain hope of overcoming him is on the coattails of Jesus, in and because of him and what he's done. And the word of their testimony, well, the testimony is saying, I've trusted Christ. Christ is my Lord. Christ is my Savior. I'm under him. And that's how to overcome him. And then we don't love our life to the death. It will be glorious for us. Uh, Paul paints this out even more because death, we may yet die if the Lord doesn't come first in the, in the rapture and catch us away before we die. If, if we don't, then we will die. But death will not have the, the last word for God's elect. And Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 15, 52 through 57. And just hear the glory of this. He says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. No more flesh distracting us and dogging us and yanking at our sleeve to take our eyes off of Jesus. We will be changed and no more death or any of its fruits. For this corruptible must put on the incorruptible 
And this mortal, death-bound, must put on immortality, deathlessness. But when this corruptible puts on the incorruptible and this mortal puts on immortality, then will come about the word that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Now the sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory in Jesus Christ. There's our hope. There's your spoiler alert. That is what is certainly, surely coming. It's settled, it's assured, it's glorious, and finally, number four, it's coming. It's coming. I'll read you the last words in the Bible. The last words in the Bible, Revelation 22, 20, and 21. He who bears witness to these things, and that's the Lord Jesus, says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, John writes. And then he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. When he comes, it will be sudden. When he comes, it will be quick. And he's coming. And all of this is on the way. And for the Christians, this is absolutely assured. This is how this opposition, this is how this battle comes out and how our ultimate victory is assured. So we should struggle and fight now with great hope, great positivity, great outcome. Because while others have little made-up things that make them feel better, we have a sure and certain promise of God the Creator, God the Lord. So we will overcome by standing in Jesus and in the strength that He gives through this battle. That is how we will overcome. But our only hope is in Jesus. We must have Him and we must be close to Him and we must follow close after Him. Let us pray. Well, our Father, we have heard You speak in Scripture. We must respond. We always respond. O God, move every believer here to respond in faith and if needed in repentance and renewal and action with hope and with joy and with gratitude. And we too also pray that you will move every unbeliever to respond by crying out to Christ for forgiveness, for redemption, for life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.